All right, well, I have the immense privilege to introduce today a, a man that does not need to be introduced at Emmaus. Um, but if you are new and, and you don't know Sam Parkinson, let me fill you in a little bit. Sam was a pastor at Emmaus for many years before he and his family were called to relocate really to the other side of the world. They now reside in Abu Dhabi where Sam uh, serves at Gulf Theological Seminary. Uh, Sam and his wife Shannon and their boys are here with us today and Sam is going to deliver God's word to us. And I know many of you are very excited about that. Uh, before I hand it off to Sam, though, I want to remind you that next Sunday, or not Sunday, next Saturday, June 24th, Saturday, June 24th, we're having an open house for Sam and Shannon uh, from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., you're welcome to join us at any point of time during that window of time. We'll have coffee, we'll have desserts set out for you, and it'll be just down the street from where you're sitting right now at First Baptist Church, North Kansas City. So be sure to come to that and uh, connect with Sam and Shannon, encourage them, and let them know how loved they are by Emmaus. Sam, would you come? And uh, I want to pray for you, brother, uh, as you prepare to, to deliver God's word to us. So... Let's do that. Would you go before the Lord with me and let's pray for Sam. God, we pray uh, for Sam this morning. We, your servants, are ready to hear from you. So, Lord, would you speak through him? God, let the words of his mouth, the meditations of his heart that he's going to share with us today, let it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we thank you for all that you are doing in Sam and through Sam and through his family, where they're serving now. And Lord, we, uh, we pray that through him, you would show us Jesus. That's what we came for this morning. We wish to see Jesus. So reveal him to us now through your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning, Emmaus. Feels good to say that. Um, yeah, thank you so much, uh, uh, Pastor Tyler, for the uh, introduction and, and for the prayer. And uh, let me just say publicly also, thank you, Tyler, for uh, shepherding this congregation so faithfully. I have been nothing but encouraged as I've received reports back from you and your uh, fellow elders. And so I am, I am very grateful for um, for you and for the other pastors. Uh, also, just want to take this uh, moment to, to acknowledge Joseph as uh, such an incredible pastor and a faithful pastor here in this congregation, and he has uh, served you in, in more ways than, I, I'm, I'm positive he has served you in more ways than uh, you know. And so uh, I'm, I'm really sad that I won't get a chance to, to hear his farewell sermon next week. I'll be uh, at Trinity Church, which is your all's church plant, um, and so looking forward to preaching there next week, but uh, so I, I won't get to hear Joseph's uh, farewell sermon in person, but I do just want to take a moment to say thank you for serving this congregation that I love so much, so faithfully for such a long time, and um, Godspeed. I'm, I'm excited to see where, uh, how the Lord will use you in your new ministry post, and uh, Emmaus' loss is their gain, but it's all a gain for, for the kingdom of Christ. Uh, yeah, as Pastor Tyler said, it was my privilege to serve here as a pastor for several years. I cut my teeth on pastoral ministry here 
And for that, I'm very grateful to, to you as a congregation for uh, putting up with me and uh, letting me learn by trial and error and, uh, and just uh, grow in the, in the difficult and uh, richly rewarding work of pastoral ministry. And I want you to know that I, I love this church dearly. Um, I pray for you all weekly, at least, and, um, and I'm just grateful to be back here uh, with so many friends and family. This is also a bit of a reunion. There's also uh, Pastor Ronnie is here. Uh, who's a founding pastor here at, at the church. Uh, Glenn and Carrie Higgins are here as well visiting. Uh, uh, Glenn was uh, uh, in the pastoral residency program that, that I went through. We were the guinea, part of the guinea pig crew. Um, uh, Michael Kenyon is here as well. And uh, uh, Michael and Christy Kenyon are here visiting. I, I, I lost them. They're, oh, there they are. Yeah, uh, Michael just finished, uh, finished up a, a task of pastoral ministry uh, in... Uh, uh, St. Clair, right? St. Clair. And uh, I, I just listened to his farewell sermon. You can go on online and listen to his farewell sermon. It was fantastic. So uh, congratulations, Michael, on finishing uh, that ministry post well and strong and looking forward to seeing what the Lord does. I'm sorry, guys. This is a, a, a too, much, too much time on this. I wasn't anticipating spending this much time doing this. So uh, turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. If you haven't turned there, Ezra chapter 3. Uh, my wife will be the first to testify that I prefer being assigned a text to preach over preaching a standalone text, uh, much to her chagrin sometimes, because that means I have to, to you know, preach, br- prepare a brand new sermon. I can't just take my, you know, this is my stateside visiting sermon, and I'll just recycle this at all the different churches. Uh, I have to prepare, you know, a new sermon, but I'm glad for it. I much prefer it. And this is doubly um, uh, uh, gratifying for me to preach through Ezra because if you recall, those of you who are, who are here during this time, several years ago, we preached through the book of Nehemiah and Ezra and Nehemiah is, is, should be together. They should be held together. So we really picked up uh, mid-sermon mid series uh, when we preached through Nehemiah. So it's really gratifying for us to kind of go back and, and uh, let me have a chance to, to preach through uh, Ezra chapter 3. And so, yeah, if you, if you haven't turned there, please turn there. In uh, Ezra chapter 3, we're going to read the whole uh, chapter this morning. I'm going to read it and then pray for us one more time briefly before we uh, spend time in the word. Uh, let's, let's read these words together. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of the booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, uh, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings of the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord, from the first day to the seventh month, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid, 
So they gave money to the Masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the great according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Our great triune God, I am so grateful for this congregation and grateful for the chance to preach your word to them. Uh, Lord Jesus, this is your church, and so we ask humbly that you would build it as you see fit in these next few minutes. I pray, Lord, that you would take... uh, Take this word uh, that, that I have prepared and multiply it by your grace. Uh, would you water the hearts of those who hear your word so that seed sown in my weakness may be raised in your power. Let the meditations uh, of our hearts uh, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants here are listening. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be reminded of our station in this life, which is marked by the dual experience of consolation, the consolation of God's presence in Christ, and the ache of perfect communion with Christ forevermore. Ezra will remind us of these two truths, that on the one hand, we have endless reasons to be grateful, to rejoice in the God of our salvation today. We have endless reasons to be grateful today for what God has done for us in Christ. And on the other hand, that we should be satisfied with nothing less than communion with God in the beatific vision, the blessed vision, the happy vision of the sight of God in our resurrected bodies in heaven forever. So gratitude and hope, these are our themes in this morning's text. Gratitude for what God has done and hope for what God will do. Now first, it's it's right for us to get our bearings around this text in general. One of the most important questions that we have to ask whenever we're considering any biblical text, uh, especially when it's a narrative text like this, is for us to ask the question, what time is it? In other words, we ask, where do the events of this story that we're reading about Where do do these events line up within the grand storyline of redemptive history that God writes with the whole Bible? Where does this line up uh, uh, in relation to Christ, essentially, is what we're asking. Where do these events take place in redemptive history? As you know, Ezra Nehemiah takes place, chronologically at least, at the end of the Old Testament. Now, it's not in the end of the Old Testament when you're reading it, but chronologically, it takes place at the end of Old Testament history. The people of Israel, after being warned for generations by the prophets of Yahweh, have now been punished for their rebellion and covenant breaking and have been taken captive initially by Babylon. And uh, the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Medo Persian Empire. And so Ezra, you will recall, begins after these. Uh, after there's been a transition of power from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, has instructed for the Judeans to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of Yahweh. And so these are some of the final acts in the play of redemptive history before the curtains drop uh, for intermission before the second act, which is the New Testament. That's act two of God's uh, redemptive historical drama. And so because of that, 
It's incredibly important, not only that we understand uh, the events of the New Testament in light of what we read today, but also that we understand what we're reading today in light of what's going to happen in the New Testament. The Old Testament, in other words, begins to tell a story that it itself does not finish. It tells a story and it leaves us in a cliffhanger. And this is incredibly important for us today, particularly important for our passage today, because without saying too much, this passage is going to conclude in a rather anticlimactic fashion. And it should, because it's not the climax. So you, you, if you're gonna finish a passage and it's not the climax, it should be anticlimactic. And so with those preliminary remarks given, let's carefully walk through this passage together. I just read those first seven verses to you from Ezra chapter three, and I wanna offer a couple of observations about uh, those seven verses this morning. First, the commendable, I want to, to, to observe the commendable disposition of these godly priests and leaders of Israel to obey the scriptures in their worship. Jeshua and Jehozadak, uh, sorry, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they, they offer this commendable disposition. They, they uh, demonstrate for us how we should respond to God's word. Make no mistake, they, they consider Cyrus's edict to return to the land as a direct work of divine providence and covenantal love. This is, this is divine promise keeping that has sent them back. And so they're grateful and they respond with worship. That's what they're doing. Their response was humble and worshipful obedience. Did you catch all those specific references to the law? Look with me at uh, verse two in chapter three. It says, they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And then in verses four and five, it says, they kept the feast of booths. Where is that? As it is written and offered the daily offerings uh, by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings that everyone made a free will offering to the Lord. So what the nation had forgotten in its years of rebellion, what the priests of those dark years had neglected in their idolatrous practices and their neglect Jeshua and Zerubbabel were eager to perform. While previous generations neglected Solomon's temple and abandoned the lawful worship of Yahweh there, these men insisted on performing all of these practices even before they had built the temple. Did you catch that in verse six? But the foundation of the temple of Yahweh was not yet laid. This didn't stop them from worshiping. They don't need a temple to worship. They're going to worship no matter what. Even the fear of the opposition of the land's new pagan inhabitants didn't inhibit them from obedient worship. We see that in verse three. So this was not an afterthought for them, brothers and sisters. Jeshua and Zerubbabel and the remnant of Judah who returned with them did not turn their attention to worship when it was convenient for them. They prioritized obedient worship. This is the very first thing they did when they uh, returned to the land. They worshiped God. They built an altar and began to worship it. Why? Worship at it. Why? Why did they do that? Well, because their exile had taught them this crucial truth, that obedient worship is a heavy 
divine gift. It's a gift of grace, and we neglect it to our peril. We neglect worship to our own peril. And I'm just praying that we, we would have such a high view of worshipful adherence to God's word that we would have the same kind of disposition as them, this default disposition to say what God's word says is good, and I'm going to do it, therefore. Whatever he wants us to do, we're going to do it. We're going to prioritize doing that. There is no greater gift than the worship of my God and my king in the assembly of the saints. I'm praying that we would have that kind of disposition. Verse 8, read on with me. Verse 8, it says, Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of the God of Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of Yahweh. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen of the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And so you should be sensing with these words that, that we just read, verses uh, eight and nine, you should be sensing from these words a building expectation, right? As their building labors uh, continue on and they are beginning to see the fruit of their labor and things are beginning to take shape and, and uh, a realistic end is, is coming in sight, they begin to assemble all the Levites, 20 years and upward, not only uh, to, to help complete the building project, but also to oversee the work of worship. Once this new temple is built, they're preparing for worship. Temple worship needs temple priests. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua were there, but they were preparing to lead the whole people into worship, and so they planned accordingly. And so anticipation is building. They're expecting something. What are they expecting? Verse 10, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, of Yahweh, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise Yahweh according to the directions of David, king of Israel, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh, because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. Now, don't be misled by this phrase, when, uh, the, uh, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, or when the foundation of the temple was laid. We hear uh, that the foundation of the temple was laid, and we tend to think of that concrete structure upon which a house sits, right? That's the foundation. That's what we're thinking about when we hear that. But if that's the idea that, that, that we have in our minds, then... Uh, the, the revelry and the rejoicing of this passage would just seem a little odd, right? Like, it's exciting to see a foundation uh, being laid, but you're not gonna, yeah, like the foundation is laid. That's just the beginning, that's just the beginning of the work. But that's not what foundation means here. The foundation of the temple being laid is communicating that it was not yet completed, or that it was not yet completed to its fully uh, decorated sense, but it was completed to a functional use, it's ready for functional use. 
So just to give you an example, this time last year, uh, I was in Abu Dhabi, uh, and I, I, I went a month earlier before my family came and joined me, and uh, spent uh, a month basically just trying to prepare things for, for our family. So getting uh, my visa, uh, getting a driver's license, and a car, and an apartment, and some of the major furnishings of the apartment, and you know, big appliances, and, uh, and so I did that, and, and for a couple of weeks while I was there, I was living in our, what our, our apartment is now. Now, if you were to compare pictures between uh, those two weeks of me living there compared to after my wife had arrived and she did her uh, magic spell and turned this you know, functional apartment into a home, you, you would see uh, it, I, it's barely even recognizable. The, the difference is massive, and yet... I could still live in that apartment. I, and I was, I was happy to live in that apartment for two weeks. It was a functioning use. That's the idea here. It's not decorated, but it's functional. They are using it for worship. That's kind of how this temple is at this point in the story. It's established and furnished with all the necessities. It's functional, uh, even, if it's, uh, if, even if it hasn't been thoroughly decorated yet, which means what we are beholding in this passage is a true consecration. They're saying, we're going to consecrate the space over to the Lord. This is his temple, and we're gonna begin to worship here now. From this point on, we're worshiping here at this temple. That's what they're doing. And so they quote the song that David wrote when the ark of the Lord, uh, after its long exile, was finally returned to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And in this way, the jubilation of this scene here is reminiscent of other passages uh, of, of consecration in the scriptures. For example, like when the, the tabernacle was first consecrated with the initial institution of Aaron and his priestly line in Leviticus chapter 9. So they finish the tabernacle and then they consecrate it over to the Lord and they praise God and they sing words similar to the ones we read here. Or... Uh, more reverently, uh, more relevantly, the construction of the first temple upon its completion under the direction of Solomon in 2 Chronicles uh, chapters 6 and 7, where the people of Israel sing the very same psalm. So they're singing the same song here when they say, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. They're singing the same song that the people sang whenever Solomon's uh, temple was finished. And so this moment is big. That's the idea. This moment is massive, except it's at this point that things take a turn in an unexpected and kind of odd direction. So look with me at verse 12. It says, but many of the priests and Levites and the heads of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted along for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with the great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So what's going on here? Is this occasion joyful, or is it sorrowful? Is it a moment of praise and celebration, or is it an occasion for lament? And the author tells us that both of these realities are present here in this uh, seen for different reasons. For the most part, uh, we can assume that the praises and the cries of lament, the, the celebration and then the cries of lament, uh, are, are uh, divided amongst two primary demographics that are present. 
You have on the one hand, those who are of the younger generation who have never known anything but captivity up until that point. And so they're, they're not comparing this to anything and they're just happy about having a temple now to worship at. But on the other hand, you have an older generation who had living memory of Solomon's temple and its heyday before it was destroyed. And those younger were nothing but thrilled by what they saw, and they praised the Lord with gladness, but those who were older, who were present, spontaneously broke out with a cry of disappointment. Why? Well, some commentators point out that they must have been weeping because of the bare bones of the current temple basically not being as impressive as the former temple of Solomon's that he had built. This is probably true to an extent, right? Solomon's temple was built at the height of Israel's prosperity and peace. They gave and they built out of the abundance of their wealth and they constructed the temple sparing no expenses under the leisure of Israel's most peaceful period in its history. Right, so they could, they could, they could really go all out. And of course, that temple is going to be more impressive than this one. By contrast, this temple's foundation was being laid while the entire nation was technically still in captivity. They built with the anxious fear of those around them, verse three says that, with the resources of those who had been stripped of their own homes and wealth using the recycled vessels uh, of the old temple, which were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar and then given back to them by Cyrus and using grants and loans from their new captors. And so, of course, this new temple is, is going to pale in comparison to the original in terms of outward beauty, in terms of impressiveness. And, of course, those who imagined the former would compare it to the new temple and they would be a little bit disappointed. But that's not all. That cannot be all that's behind their cries of disappointment. If it were, then I think that our respect for the likes of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, these men that I just commended to you for their worshipful obedience, I think that our respect for them would rightly be called into question for such a petty and vain complaint. Like, is it really likely that these older men present could be so easily swayed by such petty ingratitude? that they could so quickly uh, be turned from dedicated, worshipful obedience at risk to themselves to disappointment over such a small concern as outward beauty of a building. I don't think that that's likely. So why are they crying? And the answer is not so much what the temple looked like on the outside, but rather what didn't happen when they dedicated the temple over to the Lord. Consider the contrast of this temple dedication in Ezra chapter three that we just read with this one from Solomon's temple when it was dedicated in chapters six and seven of Second Chronicles. So at the end of the Solomon's lengthy prayer of dedication, he says, now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness, O Lord God. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1 says this. As soon as Solomon finished the prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. 
and the sacrifices and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw fire come down and the glory of Yahweh in the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Same psalm. That's what they, they sing. You see, what the, the elders of, uh, what the elders lamented in Ezra chapter three was not so much a disappointment of the trappings of the temple. It wasn't what was missing from the outside of the temple that filled them with sorrow, but rather what was missing from the inside. The glory of the Lord had not come, which convinced the, the elders, the older people who were there, it convinced them that God was not, in fact, returning to bless his people. And so their, their sorrow was not irrational or unfounded. Everything leading up to this moment of dedication led them to believe that Yahweh was about to restore Israel back to their former glory, fulfilling all the wonderful promises of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and the rest of the prophets. They these people, not unreasonably, assumed that this temple dedication would enjoy all the same fanfare, all the same display of glory and fire and praise and awe as the last one and the one that they had grown up hearing about. And instead of that, instead of that, nothing happens. Anticipation had built up and their hopes were dashed. They're weeping because they feel divine absence here. They're feeling estrangement from God, the sting of God's distance. They thought he was coming, and he's not here. And many of us can identify with this feeling, can we not? And so now that we understand more clearly where their sorrow was coming from, we might want to ask the question, whose response was right? It's not clear from the text itself. Like whose response is right? Whose response is commendable in this situation? Was the zeal of the younger generations an instructive display of humble gratitude, humble worshipful gratitude? Or was it an example of short-sighted ignorance? They're too easily pleased here. Conversely, should we consider the lament of the elders as a commendable example of not settling for anything short of the fullness of God's glory, or should we consider their response as a cautionary tale about ingratitude? And in truth, I think matters are more complex than simply commending or condemning their respective responses would allow. You see, at one level, the zeal of the younger generation, the zeal of those who are praising God is vindicated and the complaint of the elders is corrected in the scriptures themselves. So on the one hand, we have to say, look, the, the younger generation, they were right to be praising and the older generation is actually correct, uh, corrected. Where does that happen? Well, the prophet Haggai was living and ministering during this time period and in his prophecy, we read these words which were intended to lift the spirits of the disappointed Zerubbabel and Jeshua probably from this moment right here. So this is what Haggai says. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of uh, Judah, and to Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, 
Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So he's talking about this moment, saying, okay, you see this temple. You find it very unimpressive, right? What should be the response? This is what God says to Zerubbabel and to Jeshua. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That's what he says to them. Likewise, in Zechariah, who was also ministering during this time of exile, declares that whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. And so the point is clear. The humble beginnings of Jerusalem's restoration should not be interpreted as evidence that God had abandoned his people. He hadn't. He had not abandoned his people. He is still with them, and he, he, he does not intend to bring their hopes of salvation to nothing. He's going to restore them, but it's not going to be in the way that, or the time that they expected. Therefore, those who rejoiced at the dedication of the temple were right to do so. They were right to interpret the foundations being laid as proof of God's faithfulness. Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other elders should, therefore, stop lamenting and join in the celebration of those who were worshiping. And yet, their misapprehension, the misapprehension of their situation was not coming from a place of ingratitude. Zerubbabel, and Jeshua were not ungrateful. They were mistaken. They were right to set their entire hopes on the restoration of the presence of Yahweh in glory in their midst. They weren't wrong, in other words, to refuse to settle for nothing less than the glory of Yahweh amongst them. If anything, their error was in the tendency to grasp too soon for a promise that was not yet intended for them. And it's full. So impatience, not ingratitude, was their error. It was impatience. Why do I say this? Well, because we have the context of the entire scripture to make sense of their sorrow. So think with me for for an example. Think with me back in the glorious image of Eden, the Garden of Eden, in the beginning of Genesis, when Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the garden in the very presence of God himself. There in Eden flowed the river of life, and there stood the tree of life, and in it, uh, it was from this river, and from this tree, and from this garden, and from the very presence of God himself that Adam and Eve were eventually cast away. They were thrust away ever since Genesis 3, when man fell into sin. And from that point on, the story of human history has been an attempt to get back into the presence of God. It's been an attempt to get back 
to Eden. And God promised even that day that this would happen, that you would be brought back into Eden. You would be brought back into my presence. Genesis 3.15 contains that promise that God himself, that, that one day a seed of the woman would be born to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, ending the hostility between God and man. And so the whole Old Testament was a journey toward this seed, this promised seed. And so this promised seed would come from the line of Seth, we learn, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. Jacob would become the father of the nation of Israel, and Israel would be God's representative for all mankind on planet Earth. Israel was a light to the nations. It was a, it was a display of God's glory to the nations, which is why Israel alone, once she was delivered from Egypt, was given instructions to construct the tabernacle and subsequently to construct the temple. Now, this is really important. For both the tabernacle and the temple, there was a place within the tabernacle and the temple called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube in its dimensions. In other words, it was unlike any other structure that you're gonna just find in nature. It was an otherworldly kind of structure. And this otherworldly structure was where God would continue to meet with his people in shadowy and fragmentary ways through blood sacrifices and ceremonial procedures. They would get a glimpse of Eden. That's what the Holy of Holies was for. It was a portal back into the presence of God, back into Eden. Leviticus 9 describes the glory of, uh, of God coming to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that Moses constructed in the wilderness. And then as we just read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it describes the same thing happening in the, in the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And so this, this is happening all throughout the Old Testament, but something eventually terrible happens in Israel's history. And we read it about it in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 describes these words for us. It says, then the glory of the, of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes. And they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The, the glory of Yahweh left the temple. So they couldn't meet with the glory of, God, of, of Yahweh anymore in the Holy of Holies. The glory of Yahweh left in Ezekiel chapter 10. This is what the elders of Israel hoped to see the reversal of in Ezra chapter three. They longed to see the glory of the Lord, the glory which had departed because of their unfaithfulness, return, and it didn't. You see, even before the temple was destroyed, Israel was kept from the presence of God. It's not just that they didn't dwell with God because their temple was temporarily destroyed. No, rather, they didn't dwell with God because the glory of the Lord departed from them. It fled from them because of their rebellion and their blasphemous, idolatrous practices. And here, when they expected him to return in power, he didn't. The glory of God departs in Ezekiel 10. The glory of the Lord does not return in Ezra chapter 3 as expected, and the Old Testament concludes with all of these promises, all of these hopes of getting back into the presence of God, of getting back into Eden, suspended 
in midair. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, longing, aching. That's where we were. The glory of God departs in Ezekiel from the temple and does not return until, that is, until Christ, until Christ returns, until, as John 1 says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. He came back into us. And so now, God is our God. He dwells with us. We are his, and he is ours. Now, the promises of the return to an uninterrupted presence of God have already begun for those of us who are in Christ. He is, he is the tabernacle. He is the holy of holies in which we commune with God. And so the word was made flesh. And we who have seen his glory can rejoice knowing that the restoration has decisively begun, even if it is not yet fully consummate. And this is where we are, friends. We are enjoying the first fruits of salvation and eagerly awaiting the final events of eternal harvest. When Christ came to live and die and rise and ascend, he dealt the death blow to Satan the power of guilt and sin, which were Satan's only ammunition against us, they've all been accounted for in the person and work of Jesus. And so the future of his return is now guaranteed, and that means that the obstacles that keep us from getting back into Eden, from getting back into the presence of God, are accounted for. The uncleanness that keeps the glory of Yahweh from returning to be with his people has been accounted for in the person and work of Jesus. All the most difficult work, in other words, is done. It's finished. And the end has already been guaranteed. But in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, we see the consummation of that end promised. What's it gonna look like? What is it gonna look like? We're going to see the fulfillment of what Jeshua and Zerubbabel and the elders of Israel in captivity all ultimately desired. Revelation chapter 21 says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What Christ began in his first coming, he will complete in his second. And no longer will the promises of God dwelling with his people be something that we experience partially or paradoxically is it already and not yet since no no more it will be fully and it will be finally there the consolation of israel and every faithful worshiper of the one true god will be realized without any remainder no disappointment no more longing because we have the satiation of our longing there completely there the ultimate hopes of zerubbabel and jeshua and the elders and you and I will be realized. Our ultimate desire will be satisfied. The hopes of Moses who begged Yahweh in Exodus thirty-three eighteen to show him his glory. 
The hopes of David who confesses that the one thing he asks of the Lord in Psalm 27, four is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The hopes of all of those whose desires are awakened and quickened by our Lord Jesus Christ when he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The hopes of all of those passages and the scriptures will be realized there when his servants will worship him. And Revelation chapter 22, four says, they will see his face. Yes, friends, the elders of Israel should not have despised the day of small beginnings. But this does not mean that they were wrong to settle for nothing less than the blessed hope of the beatific vision, the glorious union of heaven and earth when God will dwell with man once more forever. Accursed be any impulse that dampens that desire. Let it blaze afresh. So brothers and sisters, in Christ, let us be faithful in this time between times. Let us be grateful for all that is true for us in Christ now, and let us stir up our hopes for all that will be true for us in glory. This pilgrim mentality, this pilgrim identity is palpable for me right now. I'm in a a place in my life right now where I deeply miss all of you, and so now I'm here and I get to see all of you. Six weeks from now, when, when, I'm, you know, when our visit is complete, I will be eager to return back to Abu Dhabi because I'm already beginning to miss all my people over there. That's our, that's our plight. That's our, that's our lot in this life. We're pilgrims. There's a lack of permanence. And I, I'm sure this is deeply, palpably felt for all of you as a congregation, isn't it? In the past year and a half, you have undergone tremendous tra- uh, uh, transformations and transitions with pastors leaving and new pastors coming on and members leaving and new members coming on. And this is a very transient church. My, our, our church is in, in uh, Abu Dhabi as well. So we feel this sense that this is not permanent. This is not how things are gonna last forever. We have this, we, we collide into one another and our lives get all mixed up with one another and then the, the sinews tear as our hearts are wrenched from one another and we have to go and do different things that God calls us to and it's painful, but it's not permanent. I mean, that is the hope is that we're, we have so much to be grateful for right now, but none of our hopes are completely satiated here. We're hoping for heaven. So where is your ultimate hope? Is it in anything in this life? Is it in this church? No, it should not be. Today is the day of small beginnings, but we're waiting for something greater. And I can't think of a better way for us to embrace this pilgrim identity, this tension of already having received the presence of God's glory in Christ today, but also aching and longing for the return, the, the consummation of our, of our hopes than by taking this meal of communion together. In this meal of communion together, we experience all of these realities kind of combined together. In it, when, when we as the body of Christ take this emblem of Christ's body and, and blood to consume it by faith, when we do all of this, we participate and we commune with Christ and with one another right now. God is our God, we are his people. He is in our midst right now. And we feel that in a palpable way when we have this meal of communion together. By the spirit, 
we commune with Christ truly. And by faith, this bread and this cup are spiritual nourishment of Christ's broken body for us and Christ's shed blood for us. We truly commune with him, but not like how we will. (laughs) This meal is a meal that the Lord Jesus sets for us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In the presence of our enemies, he lays a table before us in the wilderness. But the point, but it points to a heavenly banquet when there will be no more disappointment and no more estrangement and no more heartaches and no more goodbyes. Just eternal, perpetual fellowship and enjoyment of God and one another forever. That's what this meal points to. And so, friends, let gratitude and hope both be our expression of worship as we take this meal together. And so if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's my privilege, I have been so authorized by your pastors to invite you to come and take this meal with me. And I'm very much looking forward to taking this meal with you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're a part of Christ's body, you're invited to come and take this meal. If you have not yet trusted in Christ, then the request would be, please abstain from this meal. Not because we have any hard feelings, but this is a Christian meal. And so until you are a Christian, you shouldn't take it and thereby pretend that you are a Christian. This is a meal for Christians. But I would invite you, if you, are, if that falls, if you fall into that category, you're not a believer, and you're here and you're observing what we're doing, don't take this meal, but instead, I invite you to consider Christ as we take this meal, and we, those of us who take this meal, declare to you what our ultimate hope is in Jesus. Let me just say, if you have come here this morning as someone who does not yet know Christ, someone for whom these desires uh, that I've been trying to awaken in myself and my fellow Christians here seem foreign and strange, then I would just invite you to cry out to the Lord Jesus this morning in prayer and ask him to reveal to you your need for him and his all-satisfying worth. Maybe, maybe you find it strange that the Christians here among you, surrounding you, can get so worked up, <laughs> hoping for everlasting enjoyment of someone that we've never actually met in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it's like, this is weird. Why are these people so excited about seeing this guy that they've never actually met in the flesh? Maybe that's you, but maybe you feel like there's something missing that you should get, right? Like, like, like this is an alien desire that you probably shouldn't feel so alien. Like if you're feeling that, like if you're feeling like you're missing out, like you're, you're on the outside looking in and there's something that's really important that you should get but don't, then just cry out to Christ in prayer and ask him to show you what is so special about him. What's so special about you, Jesus? Ask him to reveal to you how vain and pointless and empty your life is without him. Listen, friends, every one of us who have trusted in Christ this morning, every one of us who are about to take this meal together have done so not because we're special, not because we're wonderful, not because we're righteous, but because we have grown so incredibly sick of ourselves. We've grown sick of our own sin and guilt and shame and have experienced the breathtaking reality of our burden of loss and emptiness and sin being lifted by Christ. We've experienced the joy of having our sins forgiven. We've experienced the joy of being lovingly accepted by him. So the question is, do you want that? 
Does that sound good to you? Do you crave it? And friends, that's because this is what you were made for. All your selfish ambitions are too puny and petty to satisfy. You were made to enjoy so much more than what you're settling for. You were made to enjoy unspeakable bliss and joy and the eternal fellowship with the powerful, loving creator and end of the universe. And so that's what keeps, that's what, that's what your sin keeps you from, and that's what Christ Jesus offers to restore you to, if only you would come to him right now with the empty hands of faith to receive his life for yours, his bloodshed for yours, and his resurrection to secure your own. And so come to Christ in desperation today. Don't come to this meal. Come to Christ in desperation today, and he will have you. Let's pray. Our triune God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it never returns empty, but it always accomplishes that for which you send it out to accomplish. I thank you for the instructive witness of both the young worshipers in this scene in Ezra chapter three and the older men who were longing and they could not be persuaded to settle for anything less than your glory in their midst. I pray that we would be instructed by both responses, that we would be so grateful, Lord Jesus, for what we have in you right now, and that we would be so awakened in our desires for permanence in the new heavens and the new earth, when we will experience fellowship with you forever, when we will experience the fullness of what we have as a down payment right now. God, I pray that you would awaken these desires for us. Help us to pray from our heart the words of your servant Anselm, who said this, I pray, O God, that I, make, that I may know you and love you so that I may rejoice in you. And if I cannot do so fully in this life, may I progress gradually until it comes to fullness. Let the knowledge of you grow in me here and there in heaven be made complete. Let your love grow in me here and there be made complete so that here my joy may be in great hope and there in heaven complete in reality. God of truth, I ask that I may re receive so that my joy may be complete. Until then, let my mind meditate on it. Let my tongue speak it. Let my heart love it. Let my mouth preach it. Let my soul hunger for it. Let my flesh thirst it. My whole being desire it until I enter into the joy of the Lord, who is God, three in one, blessed forevermore. Lord Jesus, that is what we ask for this morning in your name, and we pray that you awaken these desires within us as we participate in this meal of communion together. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.